0: Well, if you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to Psalm 16. I want us to be mindful this morning as we're worshiping here that our students, our youth, are worshiping at their summer camp at Centrifuge, and I hope you'll be praying for them all this week. And so many important decisions in life are made at these youth camps. I know that my life was radically changed at a youth camp. I came to know Christ at a youth camp. And so we're praying that these young people will have the same kind of experience and that it will just be a transforming component of their spiritual lives. And then our children tomorrow, tomorrow morning, are going to children's camp. And so we'll have kids spread out all over the place. I hope you'll be praying for that as well. Hey, one more housekeeping note. Uh, I was on vacation this past week, and I just want to take a moment and say a public thanksgiving to the ministers, to the staff of First Baptist Church of Nacogdoches. It is so comforting. It is so helpful to me to know such trustworthy men and women. Uh, that I can lean on when I'm not here. I think of Mark and Tom and Grant and Caleb and Melanie and another Caleb and Jonathan and Jeff and Hunter, and they just did a fantastic job last week. Uh, Sure enough, when the pastor takes vacation, a bunch of things happened that were unexpected, and things happened this last week, and they just stood up and took care of those, and I'm very thankful for them. Well, you have your Bible this morning, turn to Psalm 16. The Bible, as you know, is filled with all different kinds of literature. We call these genres. There is historical literature in our Bible. And the historical literature does just what you would think it would do. It tells us what has happened. We find in the Bible law and the epistles, which Both tell us something of the nature of God and they teach us the doctrines, the truths of God. We find prophecy in Scripture which warns us. We find wisdom literature that enlightens us. We find the Gospels which lead us to fall in love with Jesus. And we also find the Psalms. The Psalms are different than every other part of the Bible. If you've read through the Psalms, you know they don't read quite the same as the Gospels or the Book of Romans or the Book of Revelation or the Prophets. The, the Psalms are different. So what is the point of the Psalms? What are the Psalms teaching us that we don't see in the rest of the Bible? Well, the Psalms are the model for our spirituality. Now, by spirituality, I just mean the way we live out our Christian lives. The Psalms become the model for how to do that. I don't know if many of you enjoy putting puzzles together. Uh, I brought a puzzle from my house today that to, belongs to one of my daughters. It's a thousand piece puzzle. You can see it's not been put together. But the key to a puzzle. First of all are the pieces, right? A thousand pieces for this puzzle. But there's another key. What is that? It's the box top, right? It would be nearly impossible to put this puzzle together without the top of the box because that shows us what the puzzle should look like. Well, the book of Psalms is the top of the box for how to live out the Christian life. If if we wanna know how to worship the Lord and we wanna see what that looks like, we should read the book of Psalms. If we wanna know how to pray to God, we should read the book of Psalms. If we wanna know how to approach God when we're seething with anger, maybe at circumstances or at people or maybe even at God, Well, we should just read the Psalms because we find people doing that. If we want to know how could we worship God and honor God when we're disappointed or when we're frustrated or when we're lonely or when we're fearful, we should read the book of Psalms. If if we want to know how to follow God in the easy parts of life, but also how to follow God in the difficult parts of life, if we'll just read Psalms, we'll see it In action, Psalms becomes the box top for how to live the Christian life. One of the things that I've been doing over the last year is is studying the spirituality, how to live out the Christian life for key people in the history of the church. I'm working on a, a PhD, and one of the things that I'm doing in order to prepare for that or to earn that is I started with the, with the generation immediately following the last pages of scripture. And so this would be in the late first century. And I looked at how did those key Christians live out their lives. And then I went to the next century and the next century and the next century. And I tried to identify the key people in every century. And I've been studying how do they live out the Christian life. And so it's been about 55 weeks so far, about 75 books. I'm I'm drowning in all of this, but I have learned so much about something that seems to be a common denominator in the key leaders in the church in any century you want to point to. And that key thing is that those people were invested in the Psalms. They did a lot of other things they would teach the book of Romans they would explain the Gospels they would they would teach the prophecies they would they would they would do all kinds of things but those who were most successful and who had the greatest influence were always people whose focus was on the box top and who were investing their lives in the Psalms I'll give you just one historical example Uh, It's from a woman whose name is Macrina. And Macrina lived in the the fourth century, so the middle 300s. She was the oldest of 10 children. Her father died when she was relatively young. And her mother really struggled to take care of the children after the death of her husband. So Macrina, the oldest child, she just stepped up to the plate and she became really the parent for these other nine children. And she taught them the word of God. And she taught these children to pray. And she helped them to grow in their faith. And did you know that three of her brothers became what we call today church fathers, meaning these key people in the beginning of the Christian era that, that helped us have the best understanding possible of what the word of God says. And so there was a controversy that was going on, a very important controversy that was going on in the fourth century. And you're not interested enough to know all the details, but there was a fight about whether or not the church would embrace the clear teaching, the simple teaching of scripture about the Trinity, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, clearly taught in the Bible. Well, during the fourth century, uh, very influential people began to teach that something else was the truth. And they began to reject what the Bible said. And so it seemed that the whole church was beginning to go in the wrong direction. And two men and three or four men, but two men that I want to talk about today were really instrumental in making sure that the church did not reject the simple, clear truth of scripture that the father is God, the son is God, and the spirit is God. Those two men were two of the brothers of Macrina. And so when you look at their lives, they went through some high points and some low points. There were some times when they struggled with pride and arrogance, when they struggled with their understanding of scripture. And every single time they struggled, you know who was there? Macrina. And when Macrina died near the end of the fourth century, her brother Gregory, one of these two, Gregory of Nyssa and Basil, uh, Gregory was with her and he wrote her biography after she died and here's what he said i'm going to bring all these all these pieces together gregory said that the one person who was responsible for keeping the church on the Bible. This was perhaps the most critical juncture in the history of the church when the church could clearly have gone a different direction and Christianity would not look like biblical Christianity. And he says the one key person behind the scenes that made it all happen, that kept us faithful to scripture was Macrina which is probably a name you've never heard of. I think that's interesting. So here's this woman. She's the woman behind these brothers, and they were the ones on the front line, but they said it was her. It was her. She had the strength. She had the intellect. She had the fervor and the passion. It was Macrina. Now, what was her what was her secret? So if, if Macrina is the greatest woman who ever lived outside of the Bible... What was her secret? Well, what she said matched with what Basil wrote and it matched with what Gregory wrote. Her secret was that she lived in the Psalms. She had memorized the entire book of Psalms by age 12. Can you imagine that? 150 Psalms. And she began at age 12 to quote a Psalm once an hour, every hour she was awake, seven days a week until she died. And she quoted it aloud so that she ministered to everybody in her household. And then all the people that later would come to her for advice and counsel and leadership. And the reason this woman was, was this foundation piece to what the church is today is because she was invested in the Psalms. Now, here's, here's why I tell you that story. So that's the 4th century. I've looked at the 5th century, the 6th century, the 7th century. I'm up through the 17th century. I'll finish the rest of it hopefully by Christmas. But every key person in every century was a person who lived in the Psalms. The Psalms, that is that common denominator. It is the box top to the Christian life. It's the Psalms that teach us how to pray, how to worship, how to handle frustration, disappointment, loneliness, fear, confusion. It's the Psalms, the Psalms. So we're taking the month of July. We're focusing on the Psalms. Uh, Lord willing, we're going to do this next July and the next July. Psalms, it's a long book. It'll take us three years to get all the way through it, but we're reading through. Hopefully, you're reading with us the Psalms every day. We're memorizing a Psalm. We're doing our devotions out of the Psalms, our family devotions, and we're preaching from the Psalms. So today, I want us to look at one verse in Psalm 16. If you're reading with us, you read this last Wednesday. You read the whole Psalm. But I want to look at just one verse. We're going to be brief this morning. But I think this verse will be an encouragement to you. And it will help us to live in the Psalms. So you're looking with me. Psalm 16 verse 6. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. How many times a day does somebody ask you, how are you doing? How are you doing? How are you doing? How's your day going? How are you doing? And we just mumble something back. I want to give you something new to say. When somebody says, how are you doing? Say this, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places and I have a beautiful inheritance because that's our testimony. Now. I, I want that to ring in your ears before we leave today. So let's start by reading it together. Can you show it to us on the screen one more time? Let's read this aloud. Are you ready? The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance now We're going to focus on the boundary lines, but before we get to that quickly I want you to see two other things in this verse I want you to see where the lines have come from and then I want you to see how they're characterized as an inheritance So it says the boundary lines have fallen have fallen. That's an important word what does it mean that something has fallen? That means it's come from a higher place. He's talking about these blessings of God, these boundary lines. They have come to us from the Lord. James one seventeen says, "All good and perfect gifts have come from heaven. They've come from the Lord." And these boundary lines, this blessing that God has given to us, it has come from the Lord. Now he's talking specifically about our salvation. He's talking about the fact that we've been adopted into the family of God. And so God has sort of drawn a line around us. And he said, you are in my circle, the boundary lines, and they have come from heaven. It's important for us to know. It's important for us to remember that we are not children of God because we reached out to him first. It's not that we're so good, so clever, that we're so Interested in God that we have searched him out. We have found him and made a bargain with him. And so he he has saved us. No, the Bible says it starts with God looking down to us. The Bible says that God loved us before we even sinned. God looks down to us. He sent his son while we were still sinners. And God has initiated this. He has offered us this salvation because of what he's done for us. The boundary lines have fallen down from heaven. And then notice right at the end of the verse, it says that they are a beautiful inheritance. And I think that just reaffirms this whole idea of the gospel. An inheritance is not something you go and get for yourself, right? You're not putting back for your own inheritance. An inheritance isn't something that you earn. It is something somebody else earns and they give it to you. My salvation is not because I've earned it. My having a right relationship with God is not mine because I have turned over a new leaf, because I have kept the rules, because I have been a really good person. No, then it wouldn't be an inheritance, it would be a wage. No, my relationship with the Father is an inheritance. It has been given to me by my heavenly Father because of what Jesus has done. How does a person have a right relationship with God? Not by feeling bad for your sins and saying you'll never sin again and cleaning up your life and trying harder and doing better. No, you need to try harder. You need to do better. And with the help of the Lord, your life can change. But we become a child of God when we trust what God has given to us as an inheritance because of the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. When, when that falls down and we receive that, we become children of God. Now, with that being said, I want to look at the boundary lines. So how are you doing? I'll tell you how I'm doing. Lord, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. What do we mean when we say boundary lines? Well, in in our day, uh, when we have boundary lines, property lines, uh, we build a fence around them, right? And so I have a fence over here because I wanted this to stick in your mind. This is what the fence looks like at my house. And so I have a boundary line at my house, a property line. And when I think of the boundary lines... I think of a fence, looks just like that. That's a boundary line. Now, what does God mean when he, says, when he says that he has put these boundary lines around us? How is this a blessing? Well, let me give you four quick things. Number one, the boundary lines determine what I am protected from. When I think about my house, when I think about my home and the fence that is in the backyard, one of the reasons you might put up a fence is so that you'll be protected from things, right? One of the reasons people will erect fences, tall fences in their, in their lives, in their, in, on their property, is that they would be protected from things. And so that's the first thing I think of when it says, when the psalmist says that the boundary lines from God have fallen for me in pleasant places. Now, what am I protected from? As a child of God, this is talking about our salvation, I am a child of God, I've trusted what Jesus Christ has done, so the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places and they protect me from something. What do they protect me from? They protect me from death. Protect me from death. Now, that sounds pretty abrupt, but let's be honest. The biggest fear in this world, the biggest enemy in this world is what? It's death. If you're not a child of God, the thing you ought to fear is death. One day you're going to die. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The Bible says that that it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. The Bible talks about the sting of death. And if you don't know Christ, one day your life is gonna come to an end. You will die, and there will be judgment. And that's something everybody outside of the boundary lines should fear, death. I've heard people explain it this way, because sometimes... Younger people just don't fear death, right? But so somebody explained it like this. Imagine going to a big concert like we might have here. Uh, We have a pipe organ here. And imagine at the beginning of the pipe organ, one of the pipes gets stuck. I'm probably using all the wrong language for this, Richard. But one of the pipes gets stuck and it just plays that one note through the entire concert. And all the other notes, there are hundreds of notes, there are instruments going, but there's that one note that never stops. At the beginning of the concert, you would hear it, but it might not be a big deal. You could ignore it because of all the other notes, and you're enjoying the concert, but as the concert goes on, more and more you become aware of that one note. Until you get near the end of the concert, and and now that one note is so distracting that you don't hear anything else but that one note. Well, the fear of death is like that. And you may be a young person and you're just aware of death. There may be a season in your life when it's just sort of a distant thought, but I'm telling you as you get older and older and as life goes on, if you're outside the boundary, the fear of death will become louder and louder until it's all you focus on, the fear of death. But this fence, this boundary that has fallen to me, it protects me from death. The Bible says that death has a sting. But what the Bible says for those inside the fence Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that though we die, yet shall we live. And when I think about the boundary lines that God has put around my life, I think first of all, those lines, that fence protects me from death. There's another thing the boundary lines do. They determine what belongs to me. So there's a bunch of stuff in my backyard. And my neighbors uh, have a bunch of stuff in their backyard. Well, how can we tell what stuff is mine and what stuff is theirs? Well, the boundary lines, the fences. The stuff inside my fence is my stuff. The stuff inside their fence is their stuff. When I think about the fact that God has drawn these boundary lines around my life, I'm reminded that God has blessed me with some stuff to to be a little bit irreverent. Psalm 103.2 says, my soul bless the Lord and do not forget all of his benefits. For he forgives all your iniquity, he heals all of your diseases, he redeems your life from the pit, he crowns you with faithful love and compassion, he satisfies you with good things, your youth is renewed like the eagle. I have some stuff because I'm a child of God. I have stuff like peace. I have stuff like forgiveness. I have the Holy Spirit in my life who who guides me, who provides for me, who convicts me of sin. I have the wisdom of God. I have security and assurance that no matter what happens, I can trust the Lord and I have eternal life. When I think about the boundary lines for me and falling into pleasant places, it reminds me that God has given me some stuff. And then number three, the boundary lines determine what is not my problem. Uh, I have great neighbors and I love my neighbors, but in a real sense, the things on the other side of the fence are not my problem. The dog on the other side of the fence is not my problem. The, The grass and the weeds on the other side of the fence are not my problem. The property taxes that are due on the property on the other side of the fence, it's not my problem. The fence identifies what's my problem and what's not my problem. Does that make sense? And when the Bible says that God has put some boundary lines around our lives, it's a reminder there are some things that just are not my problem. And if this were a full-length message, I would give you 10 of those, but it's not. So I'm just going to give you one. Tomorrow is not my problem. I think it's, uh, it would be one of the best reminders that any of us could ever have if we would just think of the fact that God has given these boundary lines in our lives and, and outside the boundary lines tomorrow. Jesus said it this way in Matthew six uh, Don't worry, saying what we eat, what, what will we drink, what will we wear for the Gentiles eagerly seek these things. Lost people worry about tomorrow and should. He says, your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things should be added or be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. He says, tomorrow is above your pay grade. Tomorrow is outside the boundary. Just, Just seek God today and let God worry about tomorrow. Some of us, what we need to do is we need to take that last verse. You still see it on the screen there, Matthew 6, 24, 34. And we need to put it with that verse that we've been looking at. Uh, The the boundary lines of me for me have fallen in a pleasant place We need to put those two verses together and when you do here's what you come up with Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow is outside the boundary lines that God has placed in my life There's a fourth thing quickly the boundary lines determine the place I can live in peace the boundary lines at my house. They determine What is my home? And so inside my fence, like that fence, that's my home. That's mine. And it's a place of peace. It's a place of rest. Nobody criticizes me at my house for the most part. (laughs) (laughs) I am fully loved in my home. I don't feel any obligation to try to earn the love of the people in my home. I don't feel like I have to perform for people in my home. I don't feel like I have to keep up appearances for people in my home. My home inside the boundary lines is a place of peace. And when God says that he has put these boundary lines around us, he's telling us that we dwell with him with peace. I don't have to earn the love of my father. Jesus has already done it. I don't have to impress my father. There is no condemnation before my father because of what Christ has done. And the boundary lines remind me that I live in a place of peace. So how are you doing? What are you gonna say at work tomorrow when somebody says, how are you doing? I suggest you say this, the boundary lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. Just so your head bowed and eyes closed, I wanna ask you two questions. Have you stepped within the boundary lines the Lord has set for you? See, the, the lines come from heaven and God invites you in. Will you trust what Christ has done for your forgiveness? That he has made a way and surrender to the Lord and live in the boundary lines that he has given to you. If today you need to do that in this service, you can't, even where you sit. Lord, I trust you. I'm guilty of sin, I deserve death, but I trust that what Christ has done for me is enough. And I love you and surrender to you. But let me ask a second question. Are you celebrating the boundary lines the Lord has placed in your life? How are you doing? How are you doing? The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I am protected from death, and I live with my Lord fully accepted because of the blood of Christ, and I praise him for that. Father in heaven, listen to the praise of my lips as I thank you that for me the boundary lines have fallen into pleasant places.